Be thou my vision. I want to read these two verses because this is key. Last time we spoke about the meaninglessness of wisdom apart from God. This week we talk about riches and pleasures and seeking those things in place of God. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great father, I thy true son. Thou in me dwelling and I with thee one. God being the source of all wisdom and also too the wisdom of the world being set aside. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. But when we make things of this world the treasure instead of him, wow, we end up running into a problem. And we're going to see that now in our, uh, in our verses here in Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. What we'll go ahead and do is read that, pray, and then we'll get right into things. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is Coleth speaking, King Solomon. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great. And increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all of my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done. And the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity. And striving after wind, and there was no prophet under the sun. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this time where we get to spend some time in your word. And we thank you for this book of Ecclesiastes, which um, can certainly be a downer sometimes, but also teaches us so many things about getting down to the, the heart of the matter that you are God and that you are the purpose for all things that all things should be done for the purpose of glorifying you. Lord, teach us to fear you. Teach us to keep your commandments. Teach us to be righteous. And with this passage today, help us to see the futility in looking for meaning elsewhere. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus, because he has truly given us a reason for living, and we pray this in his name. Amen. 
So as we start our sermon tonight, I want you to humor me for a moment and follow me on this as I ask some questions. These are questions, you keep the answers to yourself, they'll be easy to answer. You've probably asked them of yourselves several times before. But I want it to frame kind of how we look at this passage. First of all, did you choose to be born? No. Did you choose your level of intellect or athleticism or specific gifts? Probably not. I mean, I would have chosen to be as smart as Einstein and as athletic as Lionel Messi and, I don't know, probably able to play the piano like Mozart. I don't know, something along those lines. But no, I'm just Doug. (laughs) Did you choose the place where you were born? Did you choose the family into which you were born? Did you choose where your family lived or where you grew up? Did you choose the things which you inherited your family? Not only physical characteristics like the size of your nose, your height, your weight, or the relative scarcity of your hair, but also things like your mannerisms and and the way you, you communicate, things you picked up from your family, maybe your sense of humor. In fact, getting right down to it, did you even choose how your life has gone until this point? You know, when you were a child, yeah, you didn't have a whole lot of control over things. But now you've grown up, you've got a job, you've got an income coming in, you've got lots of other things. But you're still inhibited in some ways. Because when you were a child, you probably didn't say, man, I can't wait to grow up and get a minivan. (laughs) Or, oh, man... Paying on a mortgage is going to be so cool. No, you didn't think that. When you were seven and your dad was driving on the freeway while you plastered your face to the side of the window in order to watch the trees fly by, you thought only one thing, right? You said, floor it, old man. Can this thing go 100 miles per hour? And when he inevitably told you, no, I'm not going to do that. That's not safe. That's against the law. Lots of other reasons. You went, ah, oh, man. When I grew up, I'm going to drive fast everywhere, everywhere I go every day. Or when you were eight and your mom and dad stopped you from drinking that Dr. Pepper at 7 p.m. and probably told you something like, hey, that'll keep you up all night. You probably thought, you know what, when I grow up, I'm going to drink Dr. Pepper any time of the day, every day. And now that you're older, you realize that there are some problems with that. You realize that there are prices to pay for following through on a promise like that. Weird sleep patterns, cavities, running an extra 75 miles a day in your daily jog to get rid of the, the uh, calories. And so really, each and every one of you should have answered no to each and every one of the questions I asked. Because we ultimately have very little power over where we start, and if we're truthful, we have very little power over our lives now, too. The Dr. Pepper comes with consequences, just as driving at a fast speed. We deal with calories and cops, cavities and constables, whether we want to or not. We are hemmed in, essentially. We are hemmed in on every side by consequences or limitations, I can't afford to pay the speeding fines the eight-year-old Doug wants. The eight-year-old Doug would have me drive. I can't afford that, nor can I afford the other consequences either. So I don't, and I won't. Now, a couple of months ago, we looked at verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1, and we saw there that this king teacher, our Koaleth, 
King Solomon, made this assessment of the futility and pain and grief of life by giving us this proverb in chapter 1, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, the things which are crooked or lacking in our lives from the very moment of conception and birth cannot be gained through any effort or power of ours. We can really put our backs into it. We can employ every muscle and sinew and lift with our legs. Really give it everything we've got. And still be unable to make straight the crooked situation into which we are born because what is crooked cannot be straightened in our lives like that, can they? Or we can go back and forth tirelessly at work, dumping bucketfuls of earned cash into the empty, an anxious hole of want into which we might have been born and still be unable to fill it because what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, it is certainly true that there are people out there who have these wonderful stories, and they started out with nothing. Maybe they were, uh, I don't know, maybe they were an orphan, and, and both, they worked harder than everybody that they, they knew. Everyone around them started their own business at 14, sold that at 15. Started another one, sold that at 17. Started another one, sold that at 21, and by the time they were 30, they were richer than Crassus. But we as Christians know... We as Christians know that wasn't due to their amazing work ethic, but rather to the sovereign will of God. And we know, too, that there is a way in which that which was crooked and lacking in their lives led them to become the hardworking person that they became in an effort to straighten that which was crooked and fill that which was lacking. But what happens is we're all on a broken timeline. We're all living on a broken timeline. Adam broke it. And he passed the crookedness and the lack on to Seth, who passed it on to his children, who passed it on to their children, who have passed it on to us, and we're passing it on ourselves. And no matter how hard we try, we cannot cannot bend back to straight that which is crooked or fill up what is lacking. And as we bustle about unbending and, uh, and filling, there's an implicit reason behind it, because we sense deep in ourselves that things aren't right. And that that which is crooked does need to be straightened, and that which is lacking does need to be counted. It must be found. But where do we find it? In fact, where do we even look? And that's what Solomon is getting at here in Ecclesiastes. We saw last time he looked at wisdom, probably the way his brain was wired. That was the first place he thought to look. He had questions, and he wanted to explore those questions in order to find the answers. And so he did, and we saw that in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Well, today, because he found out that that was all vanity, it was all futility, it was all a striving after the wind, now what he does is he turns to the opposite. He tries to lose himself in pleasure and possessions. He tries to lose himself in meeting the desires of his flesh. He does this through luxurious living. As one commentator put it, Solomon seeks to create for himself a small man-made and, quote, secular garden of Eden, full of civilized and agreeably uncivilized delights, with no forbidden fruits, 
or none that he regards as such. Let me say that again. Solomon seeks to create for himself a small, man-made, and secular garden of Eden full of civilized and agreeably uncivilized delights with no forbidden fruits or none that he regards as such. But as we see in this passage, Eden without God is neither peaceful nor profitable. Eden without God brings no pleasure. Eden without God is just as bad as the wasteland east of it. Eden without God is like a sunrise without the sun. Eden without God is like water that doesn't quench. Eden without God is like a breath without oxygen. Solomon learns here that the accumulation of pleasure and possessions without the fear of the Lord leaves one panicking, panicking and desperate for purpose, for meaning, for life itself. And that's where we come to our first verse. Verse 1, he says, I said to myself, so this is, this is an internal dialogue, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too is futility. From the very word go, he tells us what the result is. But he's going to test himself anyway. Test himself. Now definitely keep in mind who is talking here. This is, this is King Solomon. This is the King Solomon whom we're told in 1 Kings 4.29 was given by God wisdom and great discernment and breadth of mind. This is the King Solomon who, it says in 1 Kings 4.32, uttered 3,000 proverbs and wrote 1,005 songs. This is the King Solomon who ruled over a stable kingdom because of the work of his father David. This is the King Solomon whom God tasked to build his temple. This is the King Solomon who, when he built that temple... In 1 Kings 8, we're told, offered 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Yes, 120,000 sheep in that dedication. This is the King Solomon who had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen at his disposal. This is the King Solomon who, because of the waning of Babylon and Assyria and Egypt, controlled all of the trade routes, north and south, east and west. This is the King Solomon whom even our Lord Jesus described in Matthew 6.29 as being arrayed gloriously, dressed in the nicest clothes ever. Yes, if there was ever anyone in the history of humankind who could test himself with pleasure to the fullest extent, having nearly unlimited resources, unlimited opportunity, unlimited authority by worldly standards, and unchecked power, it was Solomon, our Koalath, our king teacher. For him to say something was to do it. For him to desire something was to find it. And so he began to try to build an Eden without God. An Eden without forbidden fruits. Now I want, to, I want us to take a note of caution at this time. Though Solomon did this pleasure-seeking after being providentially enabled by his power and authority and opportunity. And then he subsequently wrote it down for the the sake of those coming after him so that they might benefit. This doesn't excuse, obviously, his sins of excess. Instead, 
What our statement in verse 1 actually tells us is a couple of important things. Based on the one who utters it, okay, this Koleth, this King Solomon, making up his mind to test himself with pleasure, it's not like some 19-year-old who moves out of his parents' home and decides to live riotously, right? There are some key differences. First of all, because the scale can't be compared. Solomon says that he plants vineyards, made gardens and parks, planted trees, diverted streams, created ponds, irrigated forests. The hypothetical 19-year-old might make some Ikea furniture and tack up some curtains on the wall. Second of all, because the intention is different here, the hypothetical 19-year-old simply intends to please his senses. But Solomon here is truly testing himself. Testing himself. And this Hebrew word for testing, nasa, means literally to conduct a test or to make an attempt. It connotes the idea of doing something with the heartache and the trouble all built in, even when a choice to do something else is available. In other words, we almost get the impression that Solomon views his body and his mind as a laboratory, and he wants to pour various beakers into himself, see what the chemical reaction is and the benefits or failures which result. Once again, this is not to excuse, I'm going to pound on this, this is not to excuse his acts of sinful excess, but it does give us a better idea of how he probably worked. Maybe he only took on one pleasure at a time. He pleased himself with wine without also building, which is probably a good idea. Who knows how many times he'd hit his thumb, huh? Or maybe he attended to things as a connoisseur might finding the best of each experience and testing by care and an enjoyment rather than by debauching himself, by taking things immediately to the highest and most extreme level. But what does Koleth do to conduct this test? Well, we see that beginning to take shape in the next verse. He says, though, before that in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? We know, right off the bat, laughter and pleasure aren't necessarily things which are vain or meaningless in and of themselves. It's in how they're intended. It's in what, what their product or the product that they are. <laughs> what, is, um, what are they the product of? Because, for instance, we see elsewhere in the Bible that laughter is not vanity. Psalm 126 verse 2 says that when the exiles came back to Zion... Their mouths were filled with laughter and their tongue with joyful shouting. In Luke 6.21, we get a promise that, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. God himself is said to laugh in Psalm 2 and verse 4, Psalm 37 and 13, Psalm 59 and 8. Specifically, he laughs at the plans and actions of the wicked. And then Ecclesiastes even refutes this idea of laughter being meaningless in and of itself, or madness, as he says. Because it says in uh, chapter 3, verse 4, that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. And the ESV uses the term laughter in chapter 10, verse 19, when Koalesh says that bread is made for laughter. Bread is made for laughter, and I don't think there's anything wrong with bread in and of itself. Similarly, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that pleasure can still be a good thing. Psalm 16 and verse 11 says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. 
And Psalm 36, verse 8 says, You, Lord, give the children of men to drink of the river of your delights. But notice that in both of these cases, in laughter and in pleasure, that the focus is upon God. God gives the reason to laugh and joy. God gives the, re- the source of the pleasure and delight for his people. Uh, turn for a moment to Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs, or excuse me, Proverbs chapter 14. We'll start in verse 12. And this is a familiar verse, uh, Proverbs 14, 12. But how often have you looked beyond it to see the, uh, the following clarifying verses? Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Okay, there's that familiar passage. See what's in 13. Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain, and the end of joy may be grief. The backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied with his. Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain. How often do we see that? Or even experience it? Laughing on the outside, but excruciating pain on the inside. Why? Why does this happen? Because the heart is yearning for something other than God. The way that seems right to this Proverbs 14 man is the way that ends in pain, grief, and death. Those are the words they used in this passage. Pain, grief, and death. That is what a backslider, a person seeking something other than God finds when he tests the way which seems right to him. But the good man of verse 14, the good man of verse 14, when viewed within the context of the surrounding proverb, is wise and turns away from evil, is sensible and measured with what he does, is gracious with what he has been given, and realizes that the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. And therefore, satisfaction is what the good man receives, verse 14, a laughter which is not cloaking mourning and depression. So no, laughter does not automatically mean uselessness or vanity or madness, nor is pleasure something which should go unappreciated. The value of both laughter and pleasure is in where the focus lies. The juvenile and so-called humor of the depraved heart may bring a laughter to another equally depraved heart, won't it? The pleasure of a story filled with lewdness and hatred may scratch the itch of a perverse heart. But neither will last a moment beyond the echo of the laugh or the titillation of the mind. The immoral laugh and lascivious pleasure is gone in a second, and the judgment and condemnation which they bring is eternal, meaning that it even corrupts and destroys the moment at which, and the memory of, the action that brought the pleasure initially. It destroys it. Why? Because the pain of it is eternal. However, we see that the one who looks for the Lord will find the desire of their heart, and with it joyful laughter and delightful pleasure. Just as Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will give himself to us? That's what that means, right? 
Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desire of the heart of your heart. He will give Himself to us. What an amazingly gracious gift. Or as the invitation of Isaiah 55, 6 starts things off, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Why? We're told as things go on in verses 12 and 13, Isaiah 55, 12 and 13, he says, Then you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up, and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Now certainly this is prophecy, but what it also is, is it reveals to us what God does to the heart that desires Him, that seeks Him. All of a sudden, they will go out with joy and be led forth in peace, and everything around them gets transformed by the glory of God, which they now see as they seek Him. They see Him in everything. And He gives them the desires of their heart. Do you see that? We seek God, and He rewards that with the desire of our hearts. And it builds and builds and builds into an everlasting sign and memorial to him who fills our hearts with laughter and our lives with delight. But this isn't where Koaleth, our king teacher, actually goes. It's not where he starts or where he ends up going in his test of pleasure. Instead, he turns to the gratification of his senses and desires. He attempts this gratification of the senses in several ways, trying to make for himself an Eden without God, an Eden with no forbidden fruits. First is through stimulation with substances. Second, through building projects. Third, through business ventures. Fourth, through entertainment. And fifth, through women and sensuality. Verse 3 begins these five experiments. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. As I said before, Koalath seems not to be uncontrollably debauching himself here, but rather conducting a measured experiment. He says that he explored with his mind while his mind was guiding him wisely. The Hebrew word for guiding here is noheg and carries the connotation of driving something forward or to remove something forcefully. It's used in some other passages for leading out an army or for uh, driving forth a flock of sheep or a herd of livestock. In other words, he intends for his will to be in control. He intends for his will to be in charge. He intends to lead and drive the experiment rather than to be led or driven by it, by the substance with which he is stimulating himself. But notice, notice, in spite of this, in spite of these precautions, notice too that he is purposefully attempting to take hold of folly. Those are his words. Take hold of folly, verse 3. Why? So that he could see what good there is in it. In other words, he is looking for good in and about the treacherous edge of right and wrong. He's wondering if amongst the slippery rocks above the pit of sin, there might be something worthwhile. How often have you done this? 
When you see something that you desire and is within your grasp, do you forego the warnings of your heart and conduct your own experiment? Maybe you don't do it with wine, but you choose something else which you intend to, um, to control in order to see what good can be found in it. And how often has the unstable ground around your place of experiment started to treacherously give way beneath your feet? Psalm 73 talks about this predicament. Here are a few selections, a selection of verses from that, uh, that psalm. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envious of the prosperity of the wicked. The waters of abundance were drunk by them. And behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived the end of the wicked. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. But when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. And then how does the psalmist conclude? He says in verse 28 of of Psalm 73, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So we learn that Koaleth is toying with disaster. The wicked seek the edge and then drink the waters of abundance and ease only to find that their feet are set in slippery places and they fall to their own destruction. And once again, we see the opposite for the one who knows the Lord. For God's nearness is his good. And God's strength is his refuge. But the attempt to build Eden without God, the attempt at experimentation does not end for Koaleth at the stimulation of the body through wine. In verses 4 through 6, he boasts of his building projects. Verse 4, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Wow. I mean, the first thing we need to notice about that is just the sheer scale of the building projects, right? And for those of us who live here in Ohio, where it's always green and there seems no lack of water, just look at how much fell on us today. Abundant rivers and streams and lakes. It might be hard to imagine the difficulty that Solomon may have had with these building exploits. If you've ever lived in the desert, you know that water is rather scarce. In the desert, this sort of building and planting and setting aside of greenery is lavish and extreme. In fact, a redirection of water for miles around would have been required. And probably Solomon is being rather modest in his usage of the word pond here. (laughs) Entire lakes would have been needed to irrigate a forest amidst the dryness of the Levant. Yet he does it. He accomplishes his desire. He successfully plants vineyards and fruit trees to the point that he calls them not just gardens and parks, but a forest of growing trees. He doesn't just plant them experimentally, leaving them alone to see what makes it and what doesn't. 
He actually spends the resources of his people, their time and money and expertise, their sweat, to make sure the trees don't just stay alive, but actually continue to grow. This is a feat. This is incredible. The second thing which we need to notice from this passage is that the two little recurring words for myself happen four times in three verses. For myself. For myself. Not for God. Not even for the people of Israel. History tells us that Nebuchadnezzar II built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon for a wife who happened to miss the mountains, her mountain home. So he built her a garden. Solomon doesn't even do this for one of his wives. He didn't build his gardens and his parks for his wife. He didn't plant his forest of growing trees. He didn't even plant a fruit tree, evidently, for a wife who wanted a particular type of fruit. No, he did it for himself. The focus of these projects is once again upon the stimulation of himself through the personal pleasure of building and possessing. Remember that our passage today follows on the heels of the exploration of wisdom in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And in that section, we saw how the wisdom which he sought was in asking the deepest and the broadest of the questions. He wanted to learn everything for the sake of everything. He wanted to know it all for the sake of it, of knowing it all. And here in our passage, as he accomplishes great building and planting and accumulation of wealth, he's doing it for the sake of simply having it all. And whether in knowing it all or having it all, he does so for himself. And therefore, he misses the point of everything. Jesus spoke several times about building and accumulating. It's not necessarily wrong in and of itself, just like laughter is not necessarily always madness and pleasure is not necessarily always emptiness. In fact, think of the parable of the wise and foolish builders in Matthew 7 and Luke 6. We build what we build on the solid foundation of Christ, not the shifting sands of the things which are temporary. That's what we learn there. Or think of Jesus' statement on building a tower in Luke 14. Yes, upon first look, the point seems to be not to start a task which you will not be able to complete. You'll be laughed at, right? But when we look deeper, we realize that Jesus is not saying that a difficult task should not be attempted, but that the cost should be counted in order to successfully complete the task, which is eternally worthwhile. Or what about Jesus' parable of the rich fool in Luke 12? He had much abundance, and so much that he actually tore down his old barns in order to build new ones. Why? In order to live a life of ease. And while he's living that life of ease, eating and drinking and being merry, God says to him, you fool, this very night your soul will be required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? And this is the warning. Are we just trying to live lives of ease? Or are we trying to build something of eternal significance? Taken together, we learn that building is something which is part of life. It's the proper starting, uh, but the proper starting point, the rock of Jesus Christ is the counting of the cost to complete the building, or the counting of the cost to complete the building, and the rejection of ease, pleasure, and... and um, I lost my place. 
the rejection of ease, pleasure, and possession as the reason for building our key. Jesus himself builds. He says in Matthew 16, 18, that he will build his church on the confession of Christ Jesus as Lord. A confession which must permeate every project which we are to undertake. In other words, the project is not just to start in Christ. The project is not just to end in Christ. The project is to be fully in Christ from beginning to end. And how often do we see, and this is a little bit of an aside, I was taking a class recently. The starting point was Jesus. The starting point was the scriptures. But then it left immediately and it didn't end at Jesus. And yet it purported to be Christian. Why is that? Are we so easily distracted? Are we so easily distracted? I ask that with all of my heart. Do we start something with good intentions, starting it from Christ? Or do we look ahead to where the end might be, placing the end squarely on the bullseye of Jesus Christ in order to get there, but we start somewhere that's completely antithetical to him? Honestly, how often do our building projects, which purportedly are for Christ, neither start nor end with him? And all we do is just soak in some secular knowledge or some secular usage of, of a material or a capability, a technology. Christ is to permeate the whole of reason, action, word, and aim. As Paul describes the point in Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss why? For the sake of Christ. So everything that he had gained from it, he had set it aside in order to gain Christ himself. I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. He wants to gain Christ so much, he'll say that he'll, he's lost it three times in this one passage. He counts it rubbish. All of these things which might be a gain to him in the world are nothing because all he wants is Christ. And we see the opposite from Koaleth and how often do we side with Koaleth in that as opposed to Paul. If we don't look to Christ, we're trying to create an Eden without God. We're trying to create an Eden without forbidden fruits. But Koaleth's purpose here is to build for himself. As a result, he misses the point of every undertaking and finds it all futility and vanity. By the way, those words are at the beginning and the end of this assessment. He tells us up front it's futility. He tells us at the end it's vanity. And is striving after the wind. We see this in the following verses as well as he turns his mind to business and trade. Picking up in verse 7. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Remember, in regard to slaves, that Exodus 21 defines slavery within the nation of Israel. A Hebrew who became a slave was to only serve for six years, and then on the seventh was to be set free. 
But if that Hebrew slave was given a wife by his master and children resulted, the children actually belonged to the master. And so that's probably what we see here, these home-born slaves that he references. And when we consider the size of the undertakings of Solomon, plus his wealth and scope of control in Israel's economy, it is not unreasonable to believe that many of these Hebrew slaves who served for six years were freed on the seventh were probably back in economic trouble in the eighth. Beyond this, foreigners would have been bought, people who would not need to be set free, and they also would have had children. And with all these avenues for slaves to be held by Koalith, then our king teacher would have had an entire nation within a nation under his proverbial roof. This would have constituted a living wealth which it would be impossible to truly quantify. Meanwhile, his flocks and his herds were increasing too. Animals which could produce goods for trade and further wealth generation, plus, of course, feeding his, his massive family. <laughs> to the extent that silver and gold were collected beyond anyone in Jerusalem before him. And beyond all this, the treasure kept increasing because it came from kings and provinces around him. I stated earlier that the, the reign of Solomon, in, during that, he was the regional power. And it extended and reached even beyond the, the confines of normal Israel and, uh, and all the way into the smaller nations around him who would have wanted to attempt to pacify him and maintain good relations by giving him tribute, swelling his, his treasury even further. And so Koaleth experimented with this wealth, piling up for himself the power and capability and security of the rich man. Pleasures could be bought, anything of value could be acquired. The most exotic goods and foods and spices and experiences could be tested, and an Eden without God could be attempted, with forbidden fruits non-existent. Entertainment, too, was at Koaleth's disposal. The middle of verse 8 says, I provided for myself male and female singers. Solomon treated himself to good music. We all like good music, right? But if the singers of his day are anything like the entertainers of ours, other things might have been included. Dancing, spectacle, and other sensuality. Now we would obviously be reading into the text to say this for sure, but in our entertainment-saturated culture in which we live, isn't that the truth? Along with the music which we may enjoy, it's merely one avenue by which we attempt to create Eden without God because we add other things to it. And when we see wealth and entertainment mixed, generally sensuality of a sexual nature seeps in. And we see that at the end of verse 8. He says that he gave himself the pleasures of men, many concubines, now, this portion of, our, of the passage of ours is uh, very much cleaned up, we might say in the English, um, or toned down. Evidently, the original Hebrew uses a loan word which, according to some commentators, can be taken in a very crude way. The NIV kind of hints at it as it translates uh, the word concubines as harem. Uh, but the overall meaning is that Solomon is referring to women who are used merely for sexual pleasure. And he experimented with this as well. And this obviously fits with what we know about Solomon. Though we see from Solomon a beautiful 
love song between one man and one woman in Song of Songs. We know that later in life, Solomon strayed from this God-willed monogamy and had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And many of these marriages were probably politically expedient. We're even told in that same verse, 1 Kings 11, verse 3, that, a lot, that those, were, those wives were princesses. But the wandering of Solomon from God's intention for sexuality confined within a marriage between one man and one woman is underlined by the enormous number of women as well as the coarseness of the way some of them are referred to here in our passage. And the mixture of this crudeness and coarseness as a result of wealth and decadence is not something which we need to look very hard to see in our own lives, is it? If we are honest with ourselves in modern America, with the ability to download whatever we want, to stream whatever we want, to get our hands on whatever we want via delivery or whatever, even within the walls of our own homes, we attempt to build an Eden without God, an Eden without forbidden fruit. Solomon's experiments are something which plague everyone. Even though he had a greater capacity for being able to carry it out, even though he had a greater wealth and authority and, and scope of power to be able to do this, <laughs> we're all in the same boat. And just as he concludes in the next verses, we see that even with his greater capacity for exploring his desires, he still meets with the same results that we do. And so we shouldn't be surprised by our results, the results of meaninglessness. Picking up in verse 9. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all of my labor, and this was my reward for all of my labor. Wow. He calls himself great here. He was greater than all who preceded him. He refrained from nothing. He refused himself nothing. While attempting to create an Eden for himself, an Eden without God, an Eden without forbidden fruits. He was pleased with himself. He said he deserved this. That's, that's what he's saying. This, is, this was my reward for all of my labor. I deserve this. I deserve to take it easy. I deserve to have the desires of my heart satiated. I deserve this. And so one senses, as one reads the final verse of our passage today, that the results of it all end up kind of surprising him. It shouldn't, but it does. And it all of a sudden gives him the kick that he probably needs to realize the futility of life, the life that he has led. His greatness and grandeur and the pleasure by the standards of world sensu worldly sensuality and utilitarianism actually started to dawn on Solomon. That he suddenly realized that it was all useless. And remember, this is obviously old Solomon on his deathbed giving a reason to his, uh, to his son or to those who would come after and read his words to watch out. 
but we still see the fear dripping from this final verse. The sadness. He had horrifically failed. Thus I considered, verse 11, thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. This is not the labor to accumulate the things that he used for his pleasures. No, this is the labor that he had conducted in order to do his experiments. I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun. He considered it all. He thought carefully about it. He utilized his mind, which he attempted to use to guide him through the titillation of his desires for the sake of weighing the results of this experiment. Everything which he had done, everything which he had worked, all of the work that he had put into attempting to find meaning behind pleasure and possession. Well, sure, his land was transformed, right? He had built massive gardens and parks. He had planted trees. Sure, his household had increased into the thousands. His herds and his flocks had multiplied. His treasury had been swollen by silver and gold from all over the known world. His entertainments had been varied and very personal. His sensual desires had been explored and coddled. Yet it was all useless. When he considered it all, when he considered all the work of his hands, every bit of his desire, every bit of his action, all he found was that it was useless. And he states it in three of his favorite ways. He says it's all vanity, all hebel. It is as close to zero as it can get. He says that it is all a striving after wind. He says that it is no profit under the sun. This threefold expression is to emphasize to the greatest degree possible the assessment that he is making. Just as God is holy, 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 life without him is useless, futile, and vain. That's what he's saying. And he found it out by experimentation, by employing his mind, a mind which was greater than ours, to a capacity to actually fulfill his desires at a rate that is greater than ours. And all he found was the same meaninglessness that each and every one of us do when we stray. When we attempt to build our Edens without God. And so we get the benefit of seeing this very greatest attempt in the history of all of mankind at finding the value of pleasure and possessions with nothing to hold this man back. He had the brains, he had the wealth, he had the opportunity, he had the authority by worldly standards. He even had the awareness to try to keep his mind focused on the task and on his experiments, and yet he still came up empty because he did it all for himself. Seeking to build an Eden without God, an Eden without forbidden fruits. But we know... Just as we have said before in our exploration of Ecclesiastes, that everything is transformed, everything not just in life, not just in this book, but everything that we can experience is transformed when our lives are tuned to God. Because as he says at the end of the book, chapter 12, I think it's verse 8, 
The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. How do we apply this message then? How do we apply this passage then? Because that's what we need to do. I, I had an argument recently with somebody where he wanted to teach the Bible without applying it. And I don't understand how you can want to do that. This is supposed to transform us. This is supposed to adjust the way that we view the world and the way that we live our lives so that we bring about glory and honor to God by living righteously. This is about transformation. And considering how often we spend our lives looking for pleasures and looking for meaning in them, Considering how often we do that, shouldn't we want to change? Shouldn't we want to end up in a point, at a point where on our deathbed, we don't claim that all the work of our hands, all of our efforts, all of our tests, all of our labors were futile? And so the application comes in two ways. First, as you go through this next week, I want you to find times to ask yourself what Eden without God you are trying to build. How are you trying to build Eden without God? In what ways are you trying to establish an Eden without forbidden fruits for yourselves? And be honest with yourself in the answer too. It's hard. It's hard. But look deeply. And second, take action to circumvent the building of your Edens without God. One way that I was thinking of was, um, and Danielle is great about this, she hangs up reminders all over the, the house about remember God, who he is. Remember how you're supposed to live in this way. Remember to do this. Reminders. And this is exactly what God said to, the, to Israel, and, and we'll kind of end with this. If you would turn with me to uh, Numbers chapter 15. This is a challenge. And though, you know, this is for specifically the nation of Israel, the principle is, is key. We have to find ways to remind ourselves to live way, in a way that uh, will glorify God. And check this out from Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 40. Numbers 15, starting in verse 37. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel... And tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. To look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. We may not put tassels on everything, but we do need to fill our lives with reminders of the commandments of the Lord in order to fight against the desires of our own heart and our own eyes so that we do not stray into the idolatry of building Edens without God. Once again, the conclusion when all has been said is, Fear God and keep his commandments.
fear God and keep his commandments. And it prevents us from doing the things that our flesh wants to do. Or as Paul put it, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this message from Solomon, from Ecclesiastes. We're so sorry, Lord, that we are so good at this idolatry, this building of Edens without you, that we want paradise but we want somehow to hide ourselves and our actions in it from you because we know, Lord, deep in our hearts that we're being sinful, that we're hiding secret sins, that we're trying to take forbidden fruits and trying to make excuses for them to make them not forbidden. Lord, forgive us change us. Help us to only desire you so that you will give us the desire of our hearts. You'll give us yourself. You will encourage us and build us up. You'll continue the hope and the peace that lies in our hearts due to the salvation that we have through the the sacrifice of Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that you would renew our hearts, renew our strength for each and every new day, each and every new challenge, that we may rise to it and that you will be glorified and honored in it through righteousness which is displayed through your spirit and your people. And that also, Lord, we would encourage each other to do this very thing. We thank you for Jesus making all this possible. And we pray this in his name. Amen.